This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. You guys, how important is sleep temperature? It's everything to me. And this is where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Its mission is to elevate the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. It's designed for one or two sleepers. So if your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature or you only need it for one side of the bed, it still works. I just put this on top of my existing mattress and voila. So whether you're dealing with night sweats or simply seeking a better night's rest, Chili Pad is here to transform your existing mattress into a sanctuary of cool, relief, and comfort. Visit www.sleep.me slash FTL to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code FTL. This offer is exclusively available for the love listeners, only for a limited time. So order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with your sleep trial. So visit www.sleep, that's S-L-E-E-P, dot M-E slash F-T-L, because every woman deserves to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day ahead. Hi, everybody. My name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, Jen here. Before we get started with our episode today, I want to tell you about this mom who couldn't stand using soaps totally full of chemicals on her baby's skin. So she created her own natural soaps made with goat milk from her own goats. She started a business called Goat Milk Stuff, love it, that she runs with her husband and all eight, yes, eight of her children. So they're regularly hearing back from tons of people who've been suffering from eczema and psoriasis and other skin conditions who tell them that goat milk stuff soaps really help them feel better. And I absolutely love how soft and great smelling they left my skin. Um, My favorite one that I got to try was peppermint. 
just delicious. And they don't just make soaps. They have natural deodorant and lip balms and lotions, laundry soap, even more. Um, So listen, the goat milk stuff people think that you or someone you love will benefit from trying their products. So they are offering you, our listeners, a 20% discount on your whole first purchase. So just go to goatmilkstuff.com. And when you check out, use the code GIN20. Gen 20. It's good through Christmas and into next year. Okay, everybody, let's get back to our show. Hey, everybody. It is Jen Hatmaker, your hostess on the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show, you guys. We are in the middle of our For the Love of Giving series, which is giving me so many good feelings. And we are talking about all things generosity, sharing our time, our means, our resources, our talents with people and our families and neighborhoods and literally all around the world. And so, you know, generally this time of year, we're even more mindful of our gifts we've been given and the importance of, of just of generosity. And so I'm so glad that we get to talk about things like that in this community. So our next guest has quite a story and you've probably heard of him, but if you haven't, you're going to be delighted. Um, he is doing amazing things and providing literally one of the most life-giving gifts for people around the world. So you probably know Scott Harrison. He is the founder and the CEO of Charity Water. I mean, Charity Water is a marvel. It's a nonprofit organization and its its chief aim is to end the water crisis in our lifetime. So listen to this. In just 12 years, Charity Water has raised more than $320 million, $320 million to provide clean drinking water for eight and a half million people across the world. It's just like the numbers are staggering. Africa, Asia, Central America. Charity Water has used um, that third of a billion dollars to fund over 30,000 water projects in 26 countries. I mean, it's really, really phenomenal. I can't wait for you to hear Scott's story though, because 15 years ago, nobody would have ever believed that this was going to be his life's work because he was a club kid like a club promoter, a professional partier in his 20s. I mean, he's going to, you'll hear it. He tells the story. Um, but his life took a huge, a huge turn that is, I, I'm not going to stop thinking about it. In fact, I told him at the end of our conversation about the the one piece of his story that I am so going to take with me. Um, and it involves a rented Mustang driving to Maine. So just wait for that little bit of it. But um, Scott's been recognized literally everywhere. I mean, Fortune, Fortune's Magazine's 40 Under 40 list, Forbes, Impact 30 list. He was recently named one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business. And he's currently a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. I mean, he is just, he's the real deal, you guys. Um, Scott and his wife, Victoria, live in Manhattan, um, which he talks about a little bit. They're raising two littles, little littles, Jackson and Emma, and he just wrote his first book called Thirst. And we'll talk about that as well. So I absolutely love Scott. I respect him. I admire him. I'm grateful for him and his story. I've been watching him for years and he is a delight. Like you're really going to enjoy him. This guy would be our friend. Uh, so I'm so pleased to share with you my conversation with Charity Water CEO and author Scott Harrison. Scott, I am so happy to have you on the show today. Thank you for coming on. I'm so happy to be here and to to come on. We were just talking kind of before we hit record that we have a lot of 
ancillary people in common and a lot of crossover. And I've been watching your work for years. I mean, years and years and years. And so um, this is actually our first time to meet like voice to voice. And I am so pumped about it. So listen, I, I'm overjoyed by you and the work that you are doing around the world and how you do it. Um, and I've, I've told everybody a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do. So I wonder if before we dive into some more of that, could we roll it back a little bit to, to you and your beginnings and hear a little bit more about your background? Can you tell everybody kind of like where you grew up and, and what do sure. your parents do and siblings? And you went to church from the time you were little, right? Yeah, I was a worship leader. I was that kid playing keyboards. And what were you wearing? Like, what year was this? Mock turtlenecks, Jen. Oh, right. Mock oh, turtlenecks. Man, that clothes was a real that phase. were clothes that were at least two sizes too big. <laughs> Wait a minute. How old are you? Are we the same age? Uh, I'm. I just turned forty three. Yeah, forty four. That's what I thought. I, I don't know why we are all wore like double XLs, but we did. Um, I, I, I cringe at some of those photos and. <laughs> Um, you know, I actually, I actually used to have a piano tie that I would wear That's in high nice. school, Jen, in high school. <laughs> oh, no. uh, so if I go back to the beginning, uh, oh, born, in, born in Philadelphia, middle-class family, dad was a businessman who worked, um, kind of an electrical engineering plant. And my mom was a writer. Uh, she wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer and for a local yeah. newspaper. Um, they became Christians when I think I was three. Mm. That's and kind of they, rare. They'd been invited. So dad was a, a sailor. He was a Navy guy, hard yeah. drinker, hard yeah. smoker. And they got invited to some Bible study. And uh, and they just, for the first time in their life, I think the concept of sin or, you know, or them being yeah. flawed individuals hit them. Hmm. And they were having some troubles in their marriage. And, you know, as my dad describes it, we were just two really selfish people. And hmm. something about that group of people meeting in a home, um, they, they went all in. So they, uh, my dad quit drinking, uh, yeah. smoked again. <laughs> there was this, uh, this detail I remember where he had, he had bought something, I think for about $400, uh, from a store and they never cashed the check. And he okay. was just so happy for all the years, you know, he would balance his checkbook and, and, sure. and, and they never found the check. And the minute he became a Christian, he wrote that store, the check. And no. so, you know, it was wow. a real, I think it was an authentic conversion moment. Obviously. And this led us to then move closer to his job. So he was commuting about an hour mm -hmm. and said, hey, look, Christian family, spend more time together. Um, so mm -hmm. we, we move uh, into a, a drab gray house 22 minutes from his job. Uh, so okay. he could just spend more time with me. And we moved in in the winter. And it wasn't, you know, the, the dream house by any stretch of the imagination. It was a four-bedroom modest house, but there was a great school at the end of the street that I could walk to. It was on a cul-de-sac. And again, you know, it was going to take uh, 40 minutes off his commute. So what we didn't know when we moved into this house, this energy-efficient house in the middle of winter, was that there was a carbon monoxide gas leak. Hmm. The the gas company, PSENG, had installed a faulty furnace, a faulty heat exchanger, wow. and carbon monoxide was escaping and basically filling the house. So we move in and my we all start just Gosh. feeling a little sick and we're getting these symptoms. And um, on New Year's Day, my mom, who really was spending all 24 hours a day fixing up the house, unpacking boxes right. in the dead of winter, she collapses unconscious on the floor. And after a long series of blood tests and, you know, hospital visits, the doctors finally find these massive amounts of, of carbon monoxide, of carboxyhemoglobin Whoa. in her bloodstream. 
And you know, long story short, what happened to her that day was she she didn't die, thankfully, but her Gosh. immune system irreparably died. So her really? immune system never recovered. It was never able to to bounce back. And from that moment, she became hyperchemically sensitive. Um, all of the, the toxins that we just um, fight every day as we go through the world mm -hmm. began to make her very, very ill. So mom, from this point on, just her whole life changes. She starts wearing these charcoal masks. She is using oxygen. She's going to <sighs> health clinics. She's uh, all the food that she's eating now makes her sick. So she goes on weird diets where she can eat one food per meal every six days, like cashews would be breakfast. And I was really thrust into a caregiver role with my dad at a really young age and began to take care of mom and do the cooking and the cleaning and all the things she couldn't do sure. as a normal mom. So my parents' Christian faith leads them to uh, a decision not to sue the gas company. And, and okay. we believe that they could have gotten millions. My dad oh, had actually... Sure. He'd actually invited the gas company to come out because he suspected maybe there was some sort of leak. And they said, no, no, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Gosh. So it was a plumber friend of his that actually went down to the basement. And my yeah. dad and his plumber friend yanked out the heater and they found the leak themselves. That's a crazy story. Right. So, you know, my, my, my parents had a Christian doctor that said, look, you just, you don't want to be bitter. You don't want to be involved in a multi-year lawsuit. And, and at the end of the day, it was an accident, right? That they hadn't tried to kill my mom. It was a, it was a, a faulty piece of metal effectively. Mm. So, uh, you know, then it's, then I kind of fast forward to church life, mm -hmm. uh, you know, went to a bunch of different ch churches. I think my parents would identify as non-denominational. So we tried everything from Baptist to Presbyterian to okay. more charismatic assemblies of God, depending on where we lived. And, you know, really, I, I went to Christian school as a kid. And, and then um, in the ninth grade, we moved uh, to a house in the country just to try and get mom better air. Uh -huh. And my parents put me in a Christian school with nine other people in my class. Wow. The freshman year. Oh, and it met in the basement of a church. Bless it. And they couldn't afford teachers, Jen. So they rolled out our teachers on those VHS carts, you know, with like the, oh, the rubber ribbed matting. And there was a huge, actually a really good public school in the town that we were in Jersey now at this uh -huh. point. And there were 4,000 kids in the public school. And my parents just, there was something about my personality that they thought I would not do well okay. in public school that I would potentially become corrupted. Sure. And I'm like, well, I don't care because I'm just going to run away from home because I can't have an education. Right. Like I can't go on, to back to the VHS basement. So they let me move into high school and then uh, everything that they feared begins to happen. Mm. I fall in with the wrong crowd. I join mm. a band. I cut school. I stop going to classes. Yeah. And uh, that leads me to um, barely finish high school, okay. um, you know, and, and, and think of me as a C minus student, right? Where at the very last moment, they actually didn't know whether I was going to get my diploma. Cause I think I had to lie about a couple days that sure. I had been absent and, you know, get a doctor's note or something. Totally. You know, and then the, the teacher's like, you know what? I, you probably shouldn't pass, but I just don't want to see you another year. So yep. just yeah, the, exactly across e the finish line. E exactly. <laughs> yes. Just get this guy just out, out of here. here. Right. So 
um, at 18, I moved to New York City, 18, right. 19, moved to New York City. And, and my plan at the time was to become rich and famous with my band. Oh, and, sure. Of course. And I, I learned that, you know, so I was, I had fallen in love with New York City. This was the place where I was going to rebel in style. I mean, there was okay. no going back to, uh, to New Jersey at this point. Right. So I learned that uh, there's this this career, there's this job where you can get paid to drink alcohol for free in nightclubs. Like you well, can actually a make a time living. To be alive, yeah, right. I mean, I, you know, if if you want to rebel against your Christian upbringing, what better yeah. to do that than to make a career professionally yeah. drinking? <laughs> yeah, you're literally nailing rebellion. That is pitch perfect. It's like winning at rebellion. Yes, exactly. So of course, you know, to the horror of my parents, I become a nightclub promoter and okay. start climbing up the the social ladder of New York City. I wanted to be the king of nightlife. Uh, wound up working at 40 nightclubs over the next 10 years. Wow, gosh. And, and picking up every vice you might imagine would come with the territory. Yep. So you know, if you if you fast forward through um, just a lot of drunken nights and and parties and flying around the world to to Fashion Week in Milan and Paris and wow. London and you know just chasing uh, status, chasing fashion, you know, throwing parties for Cosmopolitan magazine or, mm. or Prada or MTV at the time. Um, at twenty eight. You know, I'm I'm smoking two to three packs of cigarettes every day. Okay. I have a massive drinking problem. Mm. I'm a heavy user of cocaine, ecstasy, MDMA, special K, anything I can get my hands on. Wow. So dark days. Pretty dark days. Now I haven't yeah. gone to church for ten years. You know, yeah. you can't really justify uh, my lifestyle with with faith. So I just I'd walked away from it. But I think what was interesting is I hadn't necessarily stopped believing. You know, I hadn't mm. turned into an atheist. Right. You know, mm. there's the twinge of guilt for all these sure. uh, bad behavior. It's just kind of like the voice gets smaller and smaller. You know, just put all the morality and all the spirituality into a corner, you know, and then you you pile stuff on top of it. And so so that really, I think that was the, the, the best way probably to describe what happened over these yeah. 10 years. And, you know, I had a moment at 28 and, and there was this cathartic kind of epiphany moment where... Um, I, I left New York City. I went to South right. America. Um, I started experiencing health issues at this time, and mm. uh, half my body goes numb inexplicably. Wow. Yeah. So, I, in some ways, I, I'm almost faced with uh, with mortality for the yeah. first time because I'm invincible. I'm I'm the nightclub promoter. Of course. So I start mm -hmm. seeing neurologists thinking that I have some terrible brain disease, yeah. and and nothing. Everything checks out fine. It's it's mm. inexplicable why our bodies just tell us. Yeah, so you know, I, I I go to South America on this trip. We would always leave New York City at New Year's Eve, and yeah. I go to South America. And, and I remember we rented this unbelievable compound in Punta del Este, which was a party town okay. for the rich. Um, and when you say we, this is you and your me work and my club friends. friends. Yeah, yeah, the bottle buyers. So right. I go on this trip and. I've got the health issues, and I remember it's this beautiful compound, and there we're with such wealthy people. We spend a thousand dollars on fireworks, and we blow them up in our backyard in the compound sure. next to the pool. There are magnets of Dom Perignon, champagne everywhere. Mm. My girlfriend um, at the time was, I think, she was in the cover of Elle or, or mm. um, French Vogue, and uh, I thought I had the most beautiful girl in the compound. And yeah. uh, there was a mega yacht that we were renting and, and all going out looking for sea lions. I mean. It's just that it, it was it was this moment bananas. like we had arrived right yeah. like 
surely this should make me fantastically happy. Like what uh, more is there? Right. And it was, it was almost like the day that the music stopped, almost like the game of musical chairs where for the first time the music ended and I looked around and I had no place to sit. Wow. It was, it was unsettling. Um, mm-hmm. Like the veil was lifted. Like there was this revelation that um, there was actually never going to be enough. There would never be enough money. There would never be enough girls. There would never be enough status. Somebody would always have a better watch, a better car, you know, a private plane. That that it was this endless pursuit of me, this endless pursuit of yeah. selfishness and hedonism that would have no good end. Yes. And would, would never fulfill me. And my parents, so if we kind of just think about this whole time, my parents, God bless them, you know, they are praying that their prodigal comes home. I'm sure. They've got churches praying. They have oh. ladies, you know, in their seventies. The you know, and I would go home for Christmas and I would bring, you know, the girlfriend of the, the month or sure. home and we would go to church, the candlelight service, and and I would always um you know, I'd always kind of daydream and, and humor him. And, and on this trip, he had sent me down to Uruguay with A.W. Tozer's Pursuit of God, right? Like okay. this little this little deep theological paperback. And for okay. some reason, I'd thrown it in my bag. And in South America, hungover during the days, I mean, badly hungover, we would right. wake up at 1 or 2 p.m. I begin to read the Bible again. Okay. And I begin to read this, this little theological um, pursuits. And, wow. and I think it, there was something about that book. It's funny. Cause I've, as I read it now, uh, you know, writing the book, I went back and reread it and mm-hmm. it's kind of not fun. I mean, it's dense. Right. It's, you know, it's yeah. not like the message. <laughs> right. Totally. Uh, and I think there was something about the spirit of that book or the intention. It was just about mm-hmm. someone desperately craving to know God, to please God, craving virtue, craving love. You know, he says like, we must become like little children. We have to walk away from all these possessions that, that trap us and we will never find enough. So there was language. It's like such stark relief to your current experience, right? The opposite. Exactly. Like it was someone walking in the exact opposite direction, pursuing Hmm. the exact opposite things. Right. And being such an extreme personality, um, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. So, yeah, that makes you know, sense. I, I, I just, it was, um, it was compelling. It mm. was compelling and not, nothing immediately changed, but I would okay. say my heart changed on that trip. It was just this, let me, let me take everything down a notch, hopefully right. to zero. Just like a little behavior modification. But then that was, that felt like I was miserably failing because, uh, you know, behavior modification. Okay. So I was smoking one pack a day. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and the, the, the those fun, are not good metrics. The fun was gone. I mean, my, like, I, again, mm. I hate some of the churchy words that I, I heard growing up, but I, mm. in some ways I did feel convicted. I did. Sure. I was now aware of how counter to the life that I might now want to live. You know, maybe the best way to describe it is, um, I mean, my life in some ways is just so many cliches. I mean, this mm. part of my life would have been living out the prodigal son scenario. You know, sure. give me my inheritance, F you yeah. to the church, to my parents. You know, I'm going to go and, and sow my oats. And then 10 years later, I just really missed home. Uh, and mm. I wanted to come home. And this was me for over the next six months trying to find my way back to faith, back right. to virtue. And I remember checking out churches. And back then in New York City, I mean, they were they were meeting in fluorescent lit totally. schools and basement of, you know, of, of rotary clubs and nothing felt like a fit. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I just remember praying a lot for a way out. And, 
you know, and I write about this in detail in, in the book, yeah. but there was a, there was a night, there was a moment. Um, it involves a gun and it involved bouncers in a club. And, and, mm. and I, I had this, this clear revelation that um, maybe it was time to, to actually make the clean break, you know, that, mm. that it, that the one foot in one foot out just yeah. wasn't going to work. Yep. And I, I, after this, this event that happened at the club, I wound up um, renting a, a Ford Mustang. Um, I think it was just a month long rental kind of open-ended. I start driving North. I have no idea where I'm going. Wow. And I, I ask myself the question as I'm driving, you know, through Connecticut and Vermont mm. and then Maine, what would the opposite of my life look like? What wow, would that's the, a great question. What would the 180 degree, not the pivot, not the yeah, 30 like, degree yeah, or yeah. 50 degree turn. Not like just dialing it back. But what's the St. Augustine yeah. or like Francis of Assisi? Like, yeah. what is the sell all your possessions and, you know, and live in, in poverty, you know, kind of look like? Yeah. And wow. So long story short, I kind of do that. Uh, yeah. I, I begin to apply my, my idea uh, was that I would tithe one of the 10 years that I had selfishly wasted to others. Wow. I would give that in service to the poor. And, and then I would sell my stuff and I would try and quit all the vices and start over and really, really start with a clean slate and see where, see if I could just Mm -hmm. completely create a new story. So how did you even know how to turn your North star? Like if you're thinking I'm going to give a year to the poor, this is my tithe. Where, where did your eyes look? How did you know? Where's your foothold? Who's your guide here? (laughs) Well, there was a, uh, internet cafe in Greenville, Maine. It was a dial up internet cafe. And I just start researching all the humanitarian aid organizations I'd heard of over the years. Okay. So I, I applied to World Vision and Samaritan's Purse and Save the Children and UNICEF and just, just I have no idea. Right. You know, just I'm reaching just, for I'm like the, the big guys. Going on their website uh-huh. saying, maybe I could be helpful to you in, mm. in some way. Um, and then I put in the applications. I, I never go back to New York. So I actually just start liquidating my life. I put 2,000 DVDs up on eBay in a, in oh a single lot and just sell them in a big chest. I wow. sell my speaker system. I sell, I give the piano back. I just, mm. I really liquidate my life. And I go to the South of France. Let me ask and, you a question real yeah. quick, real quick before you. I'm curious what your previous, you know, your party friends, your club friends, your colleagues, what are they saying? Do they think you've lost your mind? They don't know anything yet. I just kind oh, of went silent. They don't know anything. Yeah. Oh, you, so you, I just, you just I go just off the grid. And this okay. is what happens. You know, people people take a couple months off from clubs. And uh-huh. you know, this is all happening over a kind of six to eight week period. Okay. So I was on a long vacation. I was on an extended right. vacation. They're thinking you'll just be back. And I had a business partner. So he was holding down the clubs. He was okay. holding down the fort. Okay. So South of France. So I go to the South of France. There's this house in the mountains that a friend uh, had, had just let me borrow. And I remember just praying and you know obviously you're not doing drugs in the middle of the mountain um i am still smoking like a fiend and drinking way too much wine um and then from from there the rejection letters start coming in ah interesting. so one by one all of these humanitarian aid organizations say we don't have anything for you mm. <laughs> and and i think the subtext was like really bro <laughs> right you're right. you're a club kid you know sorry you get you're selling right. 500 dollars bottles of absolute vodka do you want to go work on our mission in darfur (laughs) like we're serious people okay right so i had actually gone to nyu and gotten a journalism degree and again i i see minus nyu going Uh the very minimum 
Got it. But my dad had saved up and I felt like I would do him a huge favor by taking his, what, $100,000 or so and actually yeah. – you know, paying one of the more expensive schools in the country to, to get a degree. So I'd never used that through nightlife, but I dust off this degree and, and apply to one organization and said, look, I could be your photojournalist. Got it. I can come and take good pictures about whatever good work you're doing. And I can write pretty good stories. I, I'd yeah. also written for the local paper when I was, um, when I was a teenager, kind of following in mom's footsteps. Right. And they they actually call me when I'm in the south of France and say, well, <laughs> turns out later they rejected my application at first. But okay. then they were about to start their mission. They were about to start their outreach without this position filled. So they had to go back through the rejected applications. Well, we got this mine. one guy. We got this yeah. one guy. And, and it wasn't like, hey, Scott, you're hired. It was like, hey, Scott, uh, we'll meet you. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> right. But what right. was what was great was the ship. It was a big hospital ship, group called Mercy Ships. Uh, yeah. And they were in Germany. They were in Bremerhaven, Germany. I'm like, well, I'm in France. I'll be there in two yeah. days. So I take the train up and I convince the – uh, my, my new bosses that I am not going to throw any crazy raves you sure. know, and I'm not going to sleep with the nurses on the ship. Like okay. I'm, I've really changed my, my life and my intention. And I really want to serve God and find my way back to, uh, mm. find my way back home really to, yeah. to what I believed as a kid. So they, they agree to take me on and now it happens quick. So two weeks later, I'm in Africa for the first time in my life. Whoa, that was fast. And I have this moment before I – so, okay, imagine now a 522-foot ship. So this is yep. almost two football fields long. Okay. 350 volunteer crew, doctors, surgeons, mm-hmm. nurses, people who are flying in from all over the world who are donating their vacation time to serve yeah. people without access to medical care. Mm-hmm. I'm the one guy on the ship that gets to run around with cameras and tell stories and, okay. and talk about all the amazing work we're going to do. So I, before I join the ship, before I hand in my passport and kind of embark and become part of their crew and part of their rules, um, I go out with a bang. I get fantastically drunk. Okay. I smoke three packs of cigarettes. Nice. And then that was it. I wow. Walk, it was something prophetic or, or symbolic mm. about walking up this gangway and just mm-hmm. imagining that the gangway then gets pulled up and we yeah. sail away from land yeah. across the ocean to a new continent, into a new life. So from that, I, it's funny, uh, interviewing some people for the book, uh, they remember me turning up smelling like liquor. <laughs> I'm sure it had <laughs> not to a great way to start. Course. Right? Yeah, right, not, exactly. not a great way to start. <laughs> but I never smoked again. I never touched Coke or any of that again. I never gambled again. It's amazing. Uh, I was celibate for five and a half years until my wedding night. I went from, you know, wow. playboy that would sleep with anything that moved to completely like with the program. You uh, did. So you I went, did. I went all in. I mean, it was just, I think it was easier to just yeah. say I'm signing back up for all of it. You know, I, I, okay. I stopped swearing, um, all of it. So that to me allowed me to then, you know, begin over, uh, and, and, and in some ways, you know, accept maybe the grace that was always there to. Absolutely. And how long stay. were you with Mercy Ships? So I did a year, uh, and then wound up signing up for a second year. So almost two years. Two years. Okay. And we were in Liberia, West Africa, which was a country with no electricity, no running water, no sewage, no mail. Yeah. Um, Charles Taylor, this warlord, had destroyed the country after a 14-year civil war that he led mm-hmm. with child soldiers. Yeah. So we came in right after the war ended, right after he'd been thrown out, just to pick up the pieces. And we saw mm-hmm. unthinkable 
suffering and sickness and atrocity. Right. And, and here I am taking pictures now of the, the medical interventions and all of this amazing work that the doctors are doing. But I'm emailing my 15,000 club friends. So I, yeah. I rolled to Africa with this big list of people that had been coming to the Prada store opening or the MTV party. So, yeah, of course, there were a few unsubscribes at first. Uh, right. But most people were just amazed. It got weird. Yeah. And you asked, what did my friends think? They thought it was amazing. Did they? Oh my gosh. Like, Scott, you're on this hospital ship with surgeons and doctors in a country Mm. we've never even heard of that's post-war and and you're helping people and thousands of sick people are turning up in fields and and, and in parking Mm. lots uh, outside of soccer stadiums and your doctors are helping them and blind people are seeing and lame people are walking and... I mean, it it was so visual. We we would see people with six-pound fleshy tumors suffocating to death on their own face, uh, completely uh, saved by these doctors who would remove the tumor and give them their face and their life and their Mm -hmm. speech back. So I I had – there was this moment of almost instant redemption of the list. So the same people that I had been getting wasted for 15 years telling – telling a story that if they got past my velvet rope and if they spent $20 on a vodka soda, that their life had meaning. I was able to tell a completely different story, a story Mm -hmm. about empathy and compassion and generosity and service. And they responded to that. Yeah. It's moving. It's there's, there's no way about it. I mean, that is good news. And so good news is good news to everybody. I, I can only imagine the conversations they were having behind your back as they were receiving your information and your intel. Well, some um, people I, thought I was doing it to get girls. <laughs> I did hear that. They're like, oh my gosh, sorry. Scott Harrison is now a humanitarian. Like, please. <laughs> a humanitarian playboy. That would have been a very roundabout way to get girls. Right. And so, uh, but still, so they're moved by it. So you're sort of pulling them into the fray of this new work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, and then what? So you're, you're, you're with Mercy Ships, and it's here that you start thinking about water. Is that right? That's right. So my second tour with Mercy Ships, I get out into the villages, and I, I bought a motorcycle, and I'm just I'm now exploring Liberia and trying to learn more about the conditions of the country and extreme poverty, and I'm off of the ship. And as I go into these rural areas, I see the water that people are drinking, Jen, and it's freaking mm-hmm. disgusting. It's filthy, brown, viscous, you know, chocolate milk. Uh, It's it's green algae. And and I'm watching children drink water. I wouldn't let an animal drink. Forget about my dog drinking it. I wouldn't let a pig drink this water. Yes. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't let a cow drink this water. And And of course, it's a great source of their suffering and their illness. And I learned that half of the country is drinking bad water. So here we are with doctors turning patients away simply because we don't have enough doctors and enough surgery slots. But yet half the country is drinking bad contaminated water exactly. that, that I later learned is the source of 52% of sickness throughout yeah. the developing world. Right. Bad water, lack of sanitation and hygiene is, is causing about half of the sickness. Hmm. So I just, I, you know, again, I didn't have to be that smart to just put these two pieces of data together. Wow, people are sick in this country. Mm-hmm. We're turning away sick people that we would love to treat. And yet half the people in the country don't have the most basic need for health met. Exactly. Then learn actually a billion people worldwide, mm. one out of every six humans at the time, is drinking bad water. And and I think it was 
particularly relevant for me because I used to sell water in our clubs for $10 Mm -hmm. a bottle. And people would come in and they would order 10 bottles sometimes, 100 bucks of water, and they would just let it sit there because they were drinking champagne or vodka instead. Sure. So there was just something about water. You know, I I heard – someone describe it once as the, the idea of a holy discontent. Like you go through life and yeah. there's just that one thing that's not okay on your watch. Yeah. Not if you yours. can do something about it. And that was mine. It was, mm-hmm. it was the fact that humans, simply because of the conditions they were born into, that they did not get to choose any more than I got to choose being born into a middle-class family in exactly. Philadelphia, that, that a sixth of the world was born in conditions where they were risking their life or even worse, walking eight hours a day often to get water, dirty water. Mm. bad, filthy, contaminated water. So I come back, I've got my issue. Um, I'm completely broke at the time because I had saved no money as a nightclub promoter. And mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm 30 years old now. My heart's on fire. I'm like running around with my laptop showing people pictures of dirty water in Liberia. Yes. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to solve it. Like I am okay. going to see the water crisis end in my lifetime. I am going to see a day when every yes. human being has clean water to drink. So I was very... Mm-hmm. It was very clear to me. It's almost like I saw the end. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm telling people this and they're like, bro, you're, you're sleeping on a closet floor, right. like of right. your old club promoter's place in Soho. And like, he's still doing drugs in that apartment, isn't he? Um, I mean, this <laughs> yeah. was not, these were yeah. not the ideal conditions to start yes. a charity. Oh, and then I find out I'm $30,000 in debt because he never paid our corporate taxes and awesome. never unwound the country. So, right. so, right. like, so you are bro. in the hole, you are unstaffed, you do not have any money. I'm on um, a payment plan with the IRS. <laughs> you're on a payment plan with the IRS, you're sleeping in a closet. And I'm and applying like, for a 501c3. <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to solve the world's water crisis, everybody. <laughs> so how on earth, what did you do next? Like, how did those first steps materialize into what ultimately became Charity Water? Well, I hired good lawyers <laughs> and said, uh, uh, yes. <laughs> please help me with my charitable status. Um, went on a payment plan and said, I'm going to okay. pay this down over a period of years and, and took responsibility for that. And just started asking people whether they would help. Would you help? Here's what I've seen. There was something so powerful about the eyewitness authority Mm -hmm. that I had. I had actually lived in this country. No doubt. You know, for over a year. So they were my- who are you asking? Are you asking- Club club owners. (laughs) That's who you're asking. That's who you're going to. Yeah. Former customers. And they start saying yes. Nine out of 10 said no, but but the one okay. out of 10 would say yes. And then I would have uh-huh. a yes and I would go on to the next 10 meetings and get another yep. yes. Um, I remember getting kicked out of a DJ booth once at two or three in the morning. And he's like, bro, you are killing my high. You're killing my butt. Okay, I will give you money, but not right now. And please get out of here. That's amazing. So I had my laptop in his face. I mean, the guy's like got his hands on his records. Oh, and I'm no. like, do you want to see Dirty Water? <laughs> no, that's too much. That story is hilarious. Um, he's like, if I give you like some money, will you just get out of here? Um, and so that's what you're asking for at first. You're asking for funding. You're I'm saying, asking for funding and uh-huh. volunteers. Yep. And, and what do you think this is going towards? Is this materializing? Is it beginning to take form or structure? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm going to raise billions of dollars. Okay. Clean water. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, you know, and I'm going to raise so much global awareness and get everyday people to care about this issue that they say, not on our watch, we're going to solve this. Every, every human being needs clean water to drink. Okay. So I kind of saw it as advocacy, awareness, and then funding okay. that is needed. So as I start talking to my everyday friends, I realized that there's actually um, a huge, huge problem with trust, that most people um, are cynical 
to charities. They are, they are, um, they, Hmm. they don't trust. And I kept hearing phrases like charities are black holes and I don't know where my money goes and, and I don't trust charities. You know, they don't use our money properly. And I I learned actually there's data behind this. I learned 42% of Americans that were polled said they didn't trust charities and Hmm. NYU polled another set of Americans and 70% of them said, we believe charities either waste money or badly waste money. Interesting. So I'm like, okay, this is going to be really hard to raise yeah. a ton of money to make any significant impact if if we follow the typical charity playbook. And I think, you know, look, now with some perspective 12 years later, I had no trappings of institutional sure. philanthropy or, you know, yep. a, a culture of direct mail, let's say, right? I just, I, I was starting over and I started by just doing user research. Hey, what would yeah. the perfect charity look like? Like what would you, what would ex- get you excited Great. about giving? Because nobody mm-hmm. had a problem with my issue. Hey, nobody thinks that human beings should be dying drinking bad water. Exactly. It was the vehicle. It was the in-between that uh-huh. I thought we could create something completely new. Hey guys, just a quick break to tell you about something I think you're going to love, especially if your heart belongs to dogs or coffee not necessarily in that order. So Grounds and Hounds Coffee Company was founded with an important mission to provide at-risk dogs a second chance at a full life. Oh my gosh. They fund their mission by creating an amazing cup of coffee. So Grounds and Hounds sources 100% fair trade, organic coffee beans, and you will taste the difference in every single cup. And here's the kicker. Grounds and Hounds gives 20% of their profits to people and organizations fighting for our canine friends. So whether it's providing pet food for low-income households or donating toys and food for shelter dogs, Grounds and Hounds strives to make a difference for every pup, one cup at a time. So whether you're buying for yourself or a friend this holiday season, Save 20% on your entire Grounds and Hounds coffee order with the code GENSFRIENDS20, J-E-N-S-F-R-I-E-N-D-S-20, GENSFRIENDS20. Go to groundsandhoundscoffee.com and enter promo code GENSFRIENDS20 at checkout. So the mission, and I, I believe there's a big difference between mission and vision. The, the mission was to end the water crisis, was to bring clean water to everybody on earth. But the vision quickly turned out to be even bigger, which was to reinvent charity, which was right. to reimagine the entire system of giving and that experience. I love the word charity. Charity means love. Yeah. And it's, it, it means to help your neighbor in need and get nothing in return. Exactly. And I thought we needed more of that in the world. So the, the bigger kind of redemptive act could be creating a movement of people who moving them from cynicism and skepticism, bringing them, bringing the disenchanted people back to the table of giving because they were only hurting themselves by not being generous. Exactly. Right? That's and, a little, I, that's our, that's the trick. Right. That and I is, believe that, yep. you know, I believe that, that I, that people would, would find redemption in moving from selfishness to unselfishness, right? Maybe they okay. wouldn't do what I do on a Sunday, but they would, they would certainly, um, come closer to a life of purpose, a life that's yes, serving others exactly. if they trusted, if they believed, if they got involved. So a okay. uh, couple of big ideas. The first was just could we create a way where 100% of all the money that we ever raised went straight to projects? So I opened up two bank accounts, said, I'm going to raise all the overhead separately. No idea uh, how we we're going to do that. But sure. 
every penny, if, if Jen gives $1 or $100 or a million dollars, every single penny is going straight to build water projects that get people clean okay. water. Okay. It doesn't right. pay for my salary or our staff salary right. or office rent or flights or any of that. All of it goes to the field. So two bank accounts. And then okay. the second big pillar was, hey, let's just prove where the money goes. Let's yeah, let's, let's show Jen like, easy. hey, here's where your dollar went or your hundred dollars. Yeah. Just and like radical she, transparency. Exactly. And and mm-hmm. we, we were at the right time because Google Earth had just started, Google Maps just started. Ah, right. We just started putting up yeah. photos and GPS and satellite images of all of our projects as we were building them around the world and saying, hey, here's what we did with your money. So proof became this pillar that was just yes. missing this feedback loop. Like if I told you what I did with 100% of your money and you could feel it tangibly, you would give more and that would be a yeah. good thing. And you might even yes. give more to others too. Yes, yes, And then yes, I wanted to yes. build a beautiful brand. That's and, true. And, and, and if, this is kind of where some of your club promoter pizzazz comes in, um, which is you're a great marketer and you're, you know how to, you know, what is, what moves people. Um, and so I love that you were able to take some of those holdovers from a different life and apply it in such a generous, creative, positive way. And, and you've done that beautifully. How did you set out building this brand? I think I just thought about the brands that I respected and, mm. you know, at the time, Nike and Apple were two good ones. And, you know, yeah. I thought, well, if, if Nike behaved like a traditional charity, Nike would market to people and say, hey, you're really fat. You're lazy. Why don't you put away the Doritos and why don't you go for a run? Okay. <laughs> and oh, yeah. by the way, will you please buy our sneakers and wear our shirt? It's I wouldn't a great work. way to think it about it. Yeah. Work, right. And, and Nike's been smart over the years. They've said, there's greatness within you. Yes. You can overcome yeah. adversity, right? Lost your legs, you can complete a marathon. Good. Lost your arm, you can play basketball. We mm-hmm. believe in you. We believe that you can run farther than you ever thought possible, that you can climb higher. And, and people are like, maybe I'll try it. Maybe I'll turn off the TV. Yeah. And, and maybe I will wear the logo of a company that believes I actually can do it. So I just thought, could we do the same? Could, could, could we build a charity that was hopeful and invitational and inspired? Um, yes. You know, we, we hear about giving back a lot these days. I hate that language. You know, mm-hmm. Giving back, it's, it, it implies that we've pillaged and plundered to such extent hmm. that maybe it's time to throw some scraps to the poor. It's good. Right? We've gotten so fat, so rich. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, let's give a little back. Why don't we mm. just talk about giving? Just frame it in the positive. That's right. Um, you know, I mean, shame is is not. It, it just it's it's not how I wanted to build the brand. So, give away one hundred percent. Prove where the money goes. Um, build an epic brand that resembled Nike or Apple or Virgin, or and then yeah. and then work with local partners. So that's what we wouldn't do. We wouldn't send. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, we just wouldn't send Westerners, anybody with my skin color, over to Africa or Asia or India to go drill a well. You know, yes. our role could be getting people with money and resources to care. But I believe for the work to be sustainable um, and culturally relevant, it had to be led by the locals. Um, Absolutely. This is just so important. And it sounds so obvious to my ears. This is our approach also. But people would be shocked how often they just helicopter in Western experts to do local work. And it's so counterproductive and it lacks dignity and it lacks intelligence, frankly. So you don't have... Never, For never example, do that. Well, we, civil engineers or hydrologists on your staff. You, they're those all local. Are locals. They're all yes. local positions. I mean, we yeah. have we have water program managers. We have auditors. I mean, we we have people who are going out there really trying to 
develop and increase the capacity of our partners. So we employ yes. 650 locals around the world now, and we're buying them drilling rigs. We're buying them more trucks. Exactly. We're paying for their training so that the locals... So you know, for me, the win was Charity Water can invest $100 million in a country, and I go there, no one has any idea who I am. Yeah, exactly. But they know and celebrate our local partners who are the ones that did $100 million worth of work. Let's just, oh, that's so good. This so, matters to me so much. Away, giving away the credit. And, uh-huh. and you know, that's, that's actually something I talk about a lot. I think one of the reasons why Charity Water has scaled so fast and has, um, has raised now $330 million or so now is because we've given away our story. So we really mm. – Don Miller puts better language to this than – you know, than, than anyone else, I think. Like, we look at our role as the guide. Yeah. And we have for 12 years now. We are not the hero in the story. Right. Yes. Our donors are the heroes. Our volunteers are the heroes. Our local partners are the heroes that are out there actually drilling the wells. The beneficiaries in these communities who are contributing sand and gravel and yes. rock and labor, they are the heroes. We're just, we're this guide. We're trying yes. to connect people who want to make a difference, who see suffering in the world and say, I would love to play a part in ending that. And then we connect them with the people on the ground who can actually lead their communities and their countries forward um, in a in the right way. So we kind of put all this stuff together. And, you know, when I say any of these things now, they sound so basic. It doesn't sound that smart. You know, we're not landing rockets on, you know, mm. platforms in the ocean. <laughs> but this this was just it was so new at the time. Mm-hmm. Transparency and brand and caring about good design and Let's build a following on Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat. And, yep. uh, you know, that was, that was just how you we did. That was the ethos. You applied so much great sort of modern progressive thinking um, to that space, which it's interesting because you're right. At the time, there was no precedence for it. Um, I, of course, we all remember watching the rise of, of Charity Water, and it was just so astonishing, and it was so captivating. One thing that you've done, and you've alluded to it a couple of times, but um, you've sort of captured this, the story of Charity Water, and and now all of its threads all around the world um, in a book. You wrote your first book, Congratulations it's called Thirst. I have it on my desk. Um, and it's it's so exciting. I would love to talk to you writer to writer for just a minute about sure. what was your writing process like and how did you how did you fit this in to to your to your life because it's a whole job. It's a whole thing. Um, and and what what how how did that go for you? How did you find the writing process? Well, it was uh, I'm not very introspective. So it's, mm. it's not something I'm good at. So that was, you know, I, I think about the future. I'm kind of, I'm, I, I'm really excited to think about next year or three years from now or five years from now or 10 years okay. from now. So going back was hard, going back into some of the family pain, um, interviewing people that, that I had treated poorly during my, oh, wow. my 10 years in New York and realized that mm. I'd really hurt people. Um, a lot of that was, was difficult. Um, I worked with a great collaborator in, in LA and she came to Africa with me and wound up helping me with so many of these interviews and just, you know, getting some of the words from voice down on page. And, um, we just, we had this, we just had this great process. I mean, I feel like I I went over every sentence in the book now, you know, 10 or 15 times. Totally. And, you know, it was, it was a long process. I mean, when it was done, it wasn't done. And I just wanted to keep making it better and keep making it better and keep making it better. And at some uh, point you just have to put it down. How long did it take you to get on paper? Just kind of the whole entire first draft. 
about 18 months, oh, yeah. the whole thing. Oh, yeah. 12, 12 to eight, it was a 12 to 18 month process. Yes. Yes. I'm excited for this. And I'm excited for everybody to, to read it and to really get to drill down into your story and the story of Charity Water, because there's so much more. I mean, you and I can sit here and talk for 29 hours about the miracles that you've seen and the lives that have been changed and the families around the world and the partners that are making it all happen. I mean, there's just so much to it and it's such good news. And I feel like, I like, I like that Thirst is coming out because we are in need of good news right now. We just are. We're, we are so thirsty for good news. We're thirsty yeah. for good people. We're thirsty for charity. We're thirsty for partnership. We are thirsty for health and healing and hope. And I mean, I'm just, I'm grabbing onto that kind of stuff right now, like a life, like a lifeline. And, and I'm, I'm so glad that you're putting some of it out into the world right now. We need it. That's the beauty of charity water, which has been, um, it's just been, it's kept me going for what now, 12 years. And it, it really is a unif. It's a big tent. It's like yeah. bomb in some ways. And, and like today feels like the most toxic and caustic time that yes. I've ever lived through. And people are just fighting about everything. They can't agree or find common ground. But everybody could agree on clean drinking water. And everybody this is can easy. agree on greater compassion, you know, to yeah. be a good neighbor, to, to outstretch our arm and try to yes. use our resources yes. to end suffering. And it's been great to see Jews and Muslims mm-hmm. and Christians mm-hmm. and you know, our biggest donor who I read about in the book is an atheist. He thinks that yeah. I, I pray to a figment of my imagination <laughs> and he's given over $18 million and been to that 11 countries. It's a really cool big tent where mm. you know, Muslim school kids during Ramadan, school kids yes. are sending in $60,000. And synagogues are sending in money. And it's just, you know, Republicans and Democrats and independents, people who would never agree on any, you know, on on social issues, on Uh political issues, can come and say, well, you know what? People probably need clean water. Right, right. To, to thrive. I think we we'll say yes life. to that. What's next for Charity Water? What's what's coming down the pike for you right now? Well, we just launched a community called the Spring that I'm really excited about. Um, so a lot of people that might have been following our story know that birthdays that was a big deal for us for the first yes. ten years. People would donate their birthdays. Kids, uh, middle aged people, uh, elderly, everybody could donate everybody. their birthday. Asked for their age in dollars, which was kind of the sticky marketing idea. Uh-huh. And uh, and then 100% would go and you could see exactly where your birthday donations went. Yeah. Um, the problem with that was that people only did one birthday. So uh, we didn't just keep finding new people every year, sure. which, is, which is exhausting. And, and as we turned 10 and kind of looked at, okay, 10 years, a quarter of a billion dollars, I think it was six and a half million people with clean water. How do we want the next 10 years to be different than the first 10? Well, we want to help more people. So we've now helped eight and a half million out of 660 million. That is 178th of the work that Mm -hmm. needs to be done. Okay. It's 1.3% solved. Mm -hmm. So so we really need to do more. We want to scale. And we thought, um, what are the businesses that we really respect? And and the businesses that we respected would, would get a customer and then keep that customer loyal. So yes. think about Netflix, right? Yep. They have a and they're delivering value every single yep. month, and and people are signed up and call it thirteen or fifteen a month. You know the Spotify's of the world, the Dropboxes of the world. Sure. We said, well, what if we could create an, a community of people um, who wouldn't just show up for one birthday or one time donation, who who show up every month? Good. And we would build community, and we would show them stories of impact. We'd let them know uh, what their thirty dollars a month, or fifty dollars a month, or ten dollars a month if they're a mm-hmm. college kid what that was doing 
around the world. And uh, we launched this for our 10th anniversary. We called it the spring. I, I, I like double entendre. So spring kind of as this, this fresh birth for the organization, yeah. a time of hope. And then it's the literal spring where yeah. so many people are getting clean water. And you know, it just started to work. Uh, mm. People <laughs> were writing us and said, I just canceled HBO and I joined oh, the spring. Wow. And yeah. people were saying, I'm giving my pension into the mm. spring. And um, it's now a community of, okay. of people in a hundred countries. Um, mm. What's interesting is the average is, is exactly $30 a month, which is what it okay. costs to get one person clean water. And we have people giving less and we have people giving more. Sure. Um, but what's amazing is that we're building on this community of people and not starting over every year. Yes, exactly. So let's say my listeners are hearing this and they love it, which of course they will. What if, if they want to get involved with Charity Water, wherever they're at in their communities, what would you suggest? Just go to the, the spring is a great place to start. Just charitywater.org slash spring and they can learn more. And Just that you know, easy. We've got a video there um, as well uh, on that page, which is kind of our 10 year anniversary video. And um, people could share that too. Um, it's, mm, it's our, yeah. it's our, it's our story. It's gotten about 11 million views now on Facebook and just that, that goes out and helps people understand um, our values, why we care, understand about water. So, you know, if someone doesn't have any money to give, they could just go and actually share our story with others. That's great. Yep. Um, this is fabulous, Scott. I am, I am so proud of you and I'm proud of the community that you've built. Um, I, I think this is just one of the, the greatest stories in our generation. And it has been such a joy to watch it flourish and grow and thrive. And just, I'm grateful for you. I'm thankful for your presence on this earth and that you did that that, that 180. I mean, I'm just think I will not forget thinking about you driving in that Mustang up to Maine and the dial up internet. I will not forget that out of this interview mm -hmm. that you just decided what is the opposite of this? What is the opposite of my life look like? That is so profound and look at it. I mean, look at the results of that question that you asked and then answered. I mean, it is really something and really special. Let me ask you three quick questions. Yep. Um, this is a giving series on the podcast. Um, and so we're asking everybody in the, in this series, this, here's the first one. What's the most memorable gift someone has ever given you? Well, I write about this in the book. There was a, a time when we almost were bankrupt and the 100% model was not working. And I was shutting down Charity Water um, in mm. defeat. And a stranger walked in and gave a million dollars. Oh, my goodness. Are you serious? Yep. No, you had no connection to this person. I had written him a cold email, scraping his email address off the domain registry. It was just a stab in the heart. Oh, my God. That's not a bad gift. That was a good answer. Um, here's the next one. Which charitable organization do you believe in and give to besides your own? Do you have one? Yeah, there's a great group uh, out of California called New Story, uh, which has taken the Charity Water 100% model, and he's building homes in a really innovative way, showing people. Mm. Um, it's So it's basically the charity shelter, how I might have approached charity shelter, right? People That's need great. clean water, they need food, they need a roof over their heads. Um, really talented entrepreneur named Brett Hagler. Um, I think that's newstory.org. So we, that's great. we give advice, we'll we that. give time, yep. and, and we give money. Okay, I love it. Last one. We ask everybody this, um, and this answer could be serious, it could be funny, it could be whatever you want. Uh, what is saving your life right now? <laughs> I think what's saving my life right now is the fact that I walk seven minutes to work every day in okay. New York City. 
Um, Talk about with that. all the travel, you know, my, my wife and I've got two kids, a two year old and a four year old. Um, we made a decision to live in a, in a smaller apartment uh, uh-huh. in New York city to, to keep me close to work. Yep. Um, as a lot of my job is on the road and a lot of travel. So it is amazing. I just had, uh, I had a meeting cancel. I actually had two meetings cancel yesterday and okay. I was home in seven minutes with the kids. That's a miracle. An hour and a half early. Sometimes, you know, someone will be late for a lunch meeting and I'll just run out on the playground and oh. meet them in the neighborhood. Um, so they're in the office. You know, I can hear, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be sitting in my office in a very serious meeting with someone in a sure. suit and I'll just see my, my four-year-old just start barreling down the hall and <laughs> crash into the office and jump into my lap. And that's so been great. You know, so many of my friends are, are commuting two hours a day, three hours yep. a day. And I just feel really blessed um, that, that I have this, this, that I have my kids close. That is outstanding. Um, thank you for being on the show today and, uh, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find charity water, where they can find your book, all of it. Sure. Yeah. Um, thirstbook.com and you know, hundred percent of, of all my author proceeds go to charity water. So I'm not making any money. So just by, by actually picking up the book and learning more about the story, you're helping us mm-hmm. get people clean water. And then I'm just, my name, Scott Harrison, and we're Charity Water, wherever wherever people are, I guess. Love it. Love it. Next time I'm in New York City, oh, come by. I come by. We'd you love that. and your wife to dinner, and I would be so glad to do it. And hey, thanks for everything today. Thank you for being who you are, and thank you for your time and your story. All right. Appreciate you so much. You're awesome, Jen. Outstanding. Outstanding work. What an impact. What a story. Uh, I, I just love being reminded that there is never a moment in any one of our lives where we are too far gone, ever. I mean, ever. There's, nothing is irredeemable. No story, no life. Um, I, I, I love that part of Scott's story as much as the enormous global impact that Charity Water has had. So um, he's just a gem, you guys just a gem. Um, of course, if you're interested more in charity water, which why wouldn't you be, um, we'll have it all linked for you, um, over the transcript at for the, or at jenhatmaker.com and everything he talked about his book, his socials, um, the Springs community, all of it and everything else that he mentioned as well. So, um, what a great guy, what a great organization, what a great time. Um, in the world to be able to connect with people like this. I have the luckiest job in the earth. So um, thanks for being a part of the giving series, you guys. More amazing guests to come that will astound you and thrill you and inspire you. Uh, We have just been so delighted to put this together and to gather these stories these stories and these people. So um, come back next week. You will not be sorry. Thank you for your amazing loyalty to this podcast. And we have the best listening community on earth. You guys love you so dearly. Have a fabulous week and see you next time. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.